Well, happy Easter. He is risen. Or has he? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Did he rise? And if he did, why does it matter? That's what we'll look at this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So you can turn there if you have your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to talk about the resurrection. Back a long time ago in our nation's history, September 19, 1961, NASA decided to open its manned space flight center in Clear Lake, Texas, just south of Houston. And for most of you, that just seems like a completely useless bit of 1960s trivia. But it's not trivial to me because, you see, my grandfather worked in the space industry in Alabama at the time. But when NASA made that decision, they relocated him and his wife and my dad from Alabama to Clear Lake, where my mom grew up. And so shortly after that move, my mom and my dad, they met and they started dating and then they got married and then eventually they had me. And so that's not trivia to me because if NASA hadn't made that decision, my dad probably would have married some Alabama girl and I would have never been born. Well, that's how history works. There's all these events that happened in human history, and the vast majority of them are nothing more than trivia to you because they have had no ramifications upon your actual life as far as you can tell. History without relevance is just trivia. It's just interesting, but has no meaning to you. So this morning, we're going to be looking at a piece of history, this event that supposedly took place 1985 years ago. This man named Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God, died and then rose from the dead. Why is that not just trivia? Why does that actually matter to you? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Our big overall question this morning, why should it matter to you whether Jesus actually rose from the dead 1985 years ago? Well, that's the question that Paul looks at in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So that's where we'll be looking this morning. The whole chapter is on the resurrection, on why it matters. So Paul is going to begin with with just the facts. He's going to lay out for us the, the facts of the resurrection. So look with me, chapter 15, verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So Paul just begins with the basic facts. You guys have heard them before, that Jesus died and was buried, and then he rose from the dead. Now, of those basic facts, one of them was problematic, the resurrection. That little fact was proving unpopular in the Greek world, including in Corinth. Gentiles or Greeks, they did not find the resurrection to be a reasonable idea. In fact, they laughed. When Paul or other Christians talked about the resurrection, they found it laughable because, first of all, well, no one's seen it. So, so why would we think that something like that could happen? And second of all, the Greeks wondered, why would anyone want to be resurrected? Why would you want this body back? I mean, let's be honest. These bodies are weak and they get sick and they're decaying and they're growing older and, and they often hurt and suffer. Why would you want this back? So actually, the Greeks thought of your body as a prison. They did not want you to be in a body. They wanted you to be released. 
And so for them, the idea of resurrection, it seemed laughable. So when Paul went to Athens and he spoke to Greek philosophers about the gospel of Jesus, well, when he gets to the resurrection, look at what happens. God has given proof to all by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, when they, these Greek philosophers, heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They found it laughable and ridiculous that Paul talked about resurrection. So what do you do when some belief you hold to is laughed at by other people? Well, for some Christians, you simply surrender the belief that you had that seemed laughable. And that's what a lot of Christians here in Corinth had done. Didn't like getting laughed at. So they gave up that tenant of our faith, Jesus' resurrection. They either said, well, probably that didn't happen, or they redefined the word to mean something metaphorical of some kind of spiritual transformation. They just abandoned whatever belief is laughed at, and Paul wasn't okay with that compromise. You see, for Paul, the actual, literal resurrection of Jesus is everything. It's absolutely essential to our faith that 1985 years ago, a guy walked out of a tomb. That was so crucial that for Paul, he would be clear. You don't have any hope. You don't have any joy. You have no meaning in life. There is nothing to Christianity without the actual literal resurrection of Jesus. In Paul's mind, you could not compromise on this idea. Paul would agree with John Updike who says this, make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It's absolutely right. If Jesus did not literally rise from the dead 1,985 years ago, then all this wonderful stuff we're doing this morning is a colossal waste of time. You should have just stayed in bed. Should just be watching TV if Jesus didn't rise. So Paul wants them to know why Jesus rose from the dead. He wants them to understand that it really happened. And so he's going to begin with the historical evidence. He's going to rehearse for them the evidence that Jesus actually did rise from the dead 1985 years ago. That evidence begins in verse 5. Paul says, and that he, that is Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter's fancy name, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep, a euphemism for death. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul lists out all of these people to whom the resurrected Jesus appeared to. And there were hundreds of them. And I love it when Paul says many of these people are still alive. Because when Paul was right, it wasn't 1985 years. It was just a couple decades after Jesus rose from the dead. And so he says these people are alive. Why does he tell the Corinthians that? He's inviting them to go talk to the witnesses. He's saying a lot of these people who actually saw Jesus rise from the dead, they're still alive, so go ask them what they saw. I love that Paul says that. It is one of my great passions in life to help people understand that Christianity is an evidence-based religion. We are not Christians because it makes us feel good. We are Christians because the historical evidence leads us to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death forever. You see, God has given us an incredible amount of historical evidence for the historicity of the resurrection. 
And I've spoken on that many times in many sermons. I've walked you through that. I actually went ahead and wrote an article a number of years ago listing out for you the top five reasons, verifiable historical evidence that we can find that indicates that Jesus really did rise from the dead almost 2,000 years ago. That article is on our website already. I'll post it later today. I'll talk about that in a bit. But let me just rehearse those top five reasons for you. So why do we believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Reason number one, you may not know this, because there were many men who claimed to be the Messiah in first century Palestine. Maybe a surprise to you. Jesus wasn't the only one to claim to be the Messiah. There were lots of Jewish men claiming to be the Messiah around this time. Why don't you know them? Well, because when they died, they stayed dead. As soon as they stayed dead, everybody forgot them. We don't remember their names. We just know they faded away. So why did this one dude who died end up starting a worldwide religion? There has to be something different about this one Jewish man who claimed to be Messiah versus all the others. Second reason why we believe Jesus actually rose from the dead, because women were the first witnesses, and that was radical in the first century. This is kind of the the gospel's me too moment. The gospel authors say it's women who first saw Jesus, and that was crazy in the first century. They couldn't believe that in the first century. And so you have to ask yourself, if they're making up the whole story, why would you include that detail that that their world found incredible and hard to believe? You wouldn't. Third reason why we believe it actually happened. Because in the accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles all looked foolish, They denied Jesus when they were tested. They they were cowards and ran away from him. They weren't there at the crucifixion. They doubted his resurrection when he arose. And so again, you got to ask yourself, if you are making up a religion, why are you going to write stories that make you look bad? You wouldn't do that. Only way to explain all of this embarrassing evidence throughout the Gospels is that all this stuff really happened. Fourth reason why we believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. Because Jesus' enemies never brought out the body. You see, this whole church thing, this Christianity thing, it started about 50 days after Jesus was killed. 50 days. And Christianity is exploding in Jerusalem. Literally thousands of people are coming to faith and the leaders of Jerusalem are freaking out. 50 days after his death, his body would have still been recognizable, right? You would simply exhume it and bring it out and show everybody, hey, look. So why didn't they bring out the body? It was right there. Well, some people conjecture they couldn't bring out the body because the disciples stole it. Okay, well, that leads to the fifth piece of historically verifiable data. Why would the disciples steal the body of Jesus and make up a religion that got them all killed? The men who who wrote down this story, they were tortured and suffered and died. Eleven of the twelve disciples were martyred for this story. And they all chose it. They could have walked away from it at any time. Most of them weren't martyred in pleasant ways. Very excruciating ways. Why would you choose to be imprisoned, beaten, tortured, and killed for a story you made up? That doesn't make any sense. So here's the deal. Ultimately, you realize every person on this planet must make a faith decision about the resurrection. Because no one can prove that it did happen, just as no one can prove that it didn't happen. Because none of us were there. 
No living person was alive when that happened. And we cannot replicate the resurrection of Jesus in a science lab. So ultimately, everyone has to decide, based on the evidence, whether it is more reasonable to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead or that he did not actually rise from the dead. And so my question for you is, which is more reasonable to believe? In my opinion, based on the historical data, It is more reasonable to believe that he actually rose from the dead 1,985 years ago than that he did not. And that's why I'm a Christian. So for you, I would challenge you to dig into the evidence and decide for yourself. Look at the data and decide which is more reasonable to believe. So that article that I wrote that walks you through these five reasons and gives a lot more data for each of them, it's actually already up on our website now. If you just go to grace-bible.org, resources, FAQs, and then why we believe Jesus rose from the dead, it's all there. I'll also post it on Facebook and Twitter later today. So read through the article and decide for yourself which you believe is more reasonable. Paul starts with the historical evidence because he wants them to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. But then he's actually going to spend most of the chapter talking about the relevance. Why does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead? How does that affect your life? This historical event that happened 1985 years ago, what bearing, what ramifications does it have to you Today, That's the bulk of the chapter. So why does the resurrection matter? Paul's going to give us three reasons why it matters. Because he rose from the dead 1985 years ago, reason it matters, number one, your sins became forgivable. Now, Paul actually, he, he couches it or phrases it from the negative starting in verse 17. So look at verse 17. Paul says it this way. And if Christ has not been raised, if he was not resurrected from the dead, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Paul's point, if Jesus did not literally rise from the dead, then this whole Christianity thing is completely worthless because we are all still in our sins. We are still under sin. Paul's point is without the resurrection, forgiveness is impossible. God cannot forgive you unless Jesus really rose. So this takes us back to what we talked about last week. For those of you who were here last week, we talked about this idea of redemption. That when Jesus went to the cross, what he was doing is purchasing your freedom from the penalty of sin. He was buying you, and the price was his own blood. He spilled his blood to buy you out of sin so that you could be forgiven. But Paul's point is, it's not actually the death of Jesus, it's the resurrection of Jesus that proves that his payment was sufficient. Let me explain it this way. So let's say this afternoon you go to Target and you buy lots of stuff. Well, when does all that stuff at Target actually belong to you? When you put it in your basket? No. When when the checker scans it? No. When you pull out your credit card, put it in the machine and say yes? No. When does it actually belong to you? When they'll let you out of the store with all their stuff. When is it yours? When the receipt prints. That's when it's yours. Now you can go. Now it belongs to you. That's the resurrection. The resurrection is the receipt that Jesus' death was sufficient to pay the price of all human sin. Without the resurrection, his payment was not enough. Because let's be honest, we've committed a lot of sin. 
I mean, just us in this room, there's a whole lot of sin if you piled it all together in the course of our entire lives. So how could one man's death pay the price of all human sin? You don't know until he rises from the dead. That is your proof that Jesus' life and death was valuable enough to pay the price of all sin. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there's still leftover sin. And you are still, as a result, in your sins. And that leads Paul to a conclusion, verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep, again, his euphemism for death, in Christ have perished. Paul's point, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there hasn't been a sufficient enough payment for sin. So those who trusted in Jesus, when they died, they still perished. To perish is to die separated from God, utterly lost, completely without hope. Now, many of you know John three sixteen, right? Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Guess what? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that is a lie. If he didn't rise from the dead, your faith doesn't matter. You are going to perish no matter what because his death wasn't sufficient. But he did rise from the dead. And that's why you know you can be forgiven when he walked out of that tomb. That is God saying, it is enough. It is finished. The payment has been made. Because he rose from the dead, your sins can be forgiven. That's what Paul brings out in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Delivered over to death for our sins. He died for our sins. But it's not his death that brings about justification. That's when God says, you are forgiven. You are in the right. What makes justification possible? resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, that is what allows a holy God to declare unholy people like us to be forgiven. Jesus's resurrection is crucial. Without it, there is no forgiveness and we are all just wasting our time. Jesus's resurrection, it's why you can be forgiven. That's the first reason that it should matter to you and to me. Second reason that the resurrection matters. Because he literally rose from the dead, death has become temporary. I came across some statistics about the fear of death. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, 68% of people surveyed reported having a strong fear of death. That's second only to glossophobia, the fear of public speaking, which is 74%. That is really funny to me. People are more afraid of dying than doing this. I pro- this is not that bad. This is not that scary to be up here, guys. I actually think that the fear of death reported is way too low because I have never met anyone who was comfortable with the idea of death. It is human to fear death. Everyone I talk to fears death. The famous American author, Jack Kerouac, said, I am young now and can look upon my body and soul with pride, but it will be mangled soon, and later it will begin to disintegrate, and then I shall die and die conclusively. How can we face such a fact and not live in fear? It's normal to fear death because the statistics on death are so outrageously high. One out of one die. 100%. We are all going to die. And if there is nothing after this life, then it is right to fear death. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then it's right to fear death. You should be terrified of death if even Jesus couldn't overcome it. Because if he's a son of God and death beat him, then it's certainly going to beat us. But he did rise from the dead. 
And because he rose from the dead, we don't have to fear death. Because he rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. Because death was temporary for him, death will be temporary for us. Look at chapter 15, verse 20. Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. First fruits, it means he was the first to rise, but there's the whole rest. Everyone else will rise as well. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus' resurrection is proof that you will be resurrected. Because his death was temporary, your death will be temporary. You will be resurrected just as Jesus was. Now, let's talk for a little bit about what that means. What what is this whole death and resurrection thing going to look like for you? How is it going to work? So we we learn a lot more actually from the book of 2 Corinthians, what Paul wrote next. So I'll give you some of those verses. What happens to you when you die? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8, Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What Paul is saying is we have courage in this life because when we know when this life ends, when we are no longer here, we will be at home with the Lord. So Paul's point is the moment you die, what does death look like for you? You are instantly at home with Jesus. Your spirit is instantly with him. However, as wonderful as that is, and it's better than this life to instantly be at home with Jesus, it's not yet your best life. Why? Because you leave your body behind. The moment that you die, you will be with Jesus, but you will be bodiless. That's actually what death means. It's the separation of the spirit and the body. So your body goes into the grave, your spirit goes to be with Jesus. And that's wonderful. It's much better than this life. There's no suffering there. There's no pain there. But it's not the best. Why? Because God designed you to need a body. Human beings were designed to be spirit and body together. That's why death is not something God is a fan of. He doesn't like it. He did not plan on death for you. Death rips apart the spirit and the body. So when you die, your spirit goes to be with Jesus. That's an improvement over this life, but it's not the best life. And Paul explains that later in that, cha- or in that chapter, verses 2 through 4. He says, for in this tent, this earthly body that you have now, we groan, longing Put on our heavenly dwelling. That's your resurrected body. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found to be naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And I know that's a weird way that Paul puts all that. What he's trying to say is, right now in your earthly body, you groan not to just be bodiless with Jesus. What you're groaning for is resurrection. You want this body to be fixed. You don't want to leave it behind. And so the moment you die, you're with Jesus. And that's a big improvement over this life. But you will still be groaning. Why? Because you want your body back. And that's a deficiency that God will fix in the resurrection. At some point in the future, you will receive your resurrected body. And it won't be exactly the body you have now. Because you right now have an earthly body. Paul calls it a heavenly body, a heavenly dwelling. God will craft a new and perfect body for you in the resurrection. We learn more about that new and perfect body back in 1 Corinthians 15. So look at at 1 Corinthians 15 again. Let's see, let's pick it up in verse 42, towards the end of the chapter, verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. 
It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What Paul wants you to understand is that resurrection is not simply reanimation of your present body. And, and what I mean by that, here's what I mean. So many of you have heard the story of Lazarus, the guy who died. They put his body in the tomb. And then Jesus came and they rolled the stone away and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out. That's not resurrection. That's just reanimation of that current body because that was still his old body. And so he still grew old. He still got sick. He still died. That's not resurrection. Only one resurrection has ever happened. And it is the resurrection of Jesus. That is your only analog that you can look at and see. How, how does it work? How does resurrection work? So we look at the resurrection of Jesus. And what we see in the resurrection of Jesus is that this new body God is going to create for you is going to be immortal and powerful and perfect. There's actually a lot of things that you see about Jesus' resurrection. First of all, in his resurrection, we find out your resurrected body is going to be a real body. He had flesh. He had bones. You could touch him. He could touch stuff. It's going to be a real body. Second, it's going to be a functional body. The book of Luke, after rising from the dead, Jesus asks for dinner. And then he eats it. It's good news to me. I like to eat. You're going to be eating forever. Now, we don't know the mechanics of how it all works. We just know that you're going to have a functional body that's still going to work and still enjoy living. Third, it was immortal. We're explicitly told Jesus rose to never be able to die again. Your resurrected body can't die. It can't feel pain. It can't become sick. It can't be injured. Again, I don't know how all that works. I just know it will be perfect. And finally, your resurrected body will still be recognizable. Because the disciples, they knew Jesus by sight. They could tell it was him. So it will be for you. When you are resurrected, your friends will know it's you. You will know, hey, it's Blake when I'm resurrected. Now, I don't know the details. It would appear that your resurrected body will be at about peak health, whatever age that is. You're not going to be old and decrepit for eternity, even if you lived a long life here on earth. You're going to be perfect, whatever that looks like. So incredibly good news. Because Jesus was resurrected, so will you be. His resurrection is proof that you have nothing to fear in death. And that's how Paul concludes the chapter. Look with me at verse 54. All of this good news about resurrection leads Paul to this conclusion. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable. In other words, when resurrection happens and you get your perfect body and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead, so you need not fear death. Your death is is only going to be a light momentary inconvenience. That's why Paul, four times in this chapter, talks about believers who've died as falling asleep. That's all death is going to be for you. Just briefly, momentarily, you fall asleep and you wake up and you're next to Jesus. No time will have passed. You're immediately at home with him. Death is not something that we need to fear. The death of a believer is actually the beginning of their better life. Not the best life yet, but a new dawn. As they immediately are at home with Jesus. Awaiting this perfect resurrection. And and that incredible truth actually led Ben Franklin on one of his better days to write this to be inscribed on his tombstone. I love these words. 
The body of B. Franklin, printer like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost. For it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. That is your hope. The body you have now is not the last one you get. You're going to get a new and perfect one to enjoy forever in the presence of Jesus and your Heavenly Father. And that is proven because Jesus walked out of that tomb 1,985 years ago. You need not ever fear death. Reason number three, why the resurrection matters to us. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, life became meaningful. Now, Paul, again, he's going to phrase this at first from a negative perspective. So look with me at verse 19. Verse 19, Paul says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, meaning there's no resurrection, we are of all men most to be pitied. Why? Well, then Paul tells us, look down at verse 32. If from human motives... Meaning there's no truth to the resurrection. There's no truth to Christianity. I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, which Paul did because of his faith in Jesus. What does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. As followers of Christ, we are called to a sacrificial way of life. We say no to a lot of pleasurable things that we're told we can't do. And and we also say no to a lot of things that are okay, but that we have to sacrifice to love and serve other people. The Christian life is inherently a life of sacrifice. And Paul wants you to understand, if there's no resurrection in your future, then all of that noble sacrifice is a complete waste in time. Complete waste of time. Why? Well, because if none of the resurrection stuff is true, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if none of this Christianity stuff is true, then all of this noble selflessness and sacrifice you're putting forward in this life, what's going to be the end of it? Well, one day the sun is going to go boom and all human life is going to come to an end and there will be no one still existing to know or care whether you lived a selfless or a selfish life. So if this is the only life that you get, then the most foolish thing you could do is to sacrifice this life now, the only one you get, on behalf of other people. Paul wants you to understand, if there is no resurrection, then Malcolm Forbes, the guy who like wrote Forbes, is correct. He who dies with the most toys wins. That is all that matters in life if there is not another life to look forward to. If there is no resurrection, then there is no meaning in this life. But there is a resurrection. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead. And that gives meaning to your sacrifice. Why? Well, Paul tells us, very last verse of the chapter. Turn to the very end of the chapter. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. All of your selflessness, all of your sacrifice on behalf of other people in this life, it is not in vain. Why? Because you and the people you are serving are going to live forever. So the acts of service you are doing now have eternal significance. When you sacrifice yourself now, it makes someone else's life and your life better forever. So your sacrifice and your service, they have meaning that transcends the short amount of time you get on this planet. 
The resurrection is what gives meaning to your life. It what makes all of your selflessness, all of your sacrifice, all of your love worthwhile. Because you and others will last forever. Jesus walking out of the tomb 1985 years ago is what makes this life meaningful for you today. So Paul wants you to understand Why should you look into the evidence about whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead 1,985 years ago? Because if he did, it changes everything. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, then sins became forgivable, death became temporary, and life became meaningful. Your whole life is changed. Your whole eternity is changed if he actually rose. So I want to challenge you this week. I want to challenge you to dig into the evidence For some of you, it's going to be for the first time. For some of you, you haven't yet chosen to believe. It still seems outrageous to you that a guy named Jesus actually rose from the dead to pay for your sin. That sounds crazy. I'm going to challenge you to dig into the evidence for yourself, to wrestle with the resurrection. For those of you for whom this is nothing new, you believe that Jesus rose from the dead for years, I'm going to challenge you to look at the evidence for the purpose of being ready to share it with someone else. Do you know why you believe? I hope it's not just because you grew up in church. It's wonderful if you did. But I hope you've thought through the evidence because Christianity is an evidence-based religion. So I hope you are ready to share with someone the good news that 1985 years ago, Jesus actually rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death. And here is why I believe it's true. So for all of us, our challenge this week is to dig into that evidence so that we can either believe it for the first time or so that we can be equipped to share this good news with other people. Because apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they don't yet have hope. They don't have joy. They don't have meaning. So please, share this good news. It's the greatest news that has ever been told in the history of the human race. Ultimately, that's what Easter is about. It's about the fact that we win because Jesus won. We know where we're headed. We have hope in the future. We have joy in the present. Because 1,985 years ago, the Son of God actually, literally walked out of a tomb. And he did it for us. So let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you, the creator of the universe, would care at all about us. That you, the one who made all things, who is the lawgiver, who is eternal, who is immortal, who stands transcendent above all things, that, that you would choose to love us and call us your children. We're so grateful, Father, that you love us tenderly, that you care about us compassionately. We praise you that out of love, you sent your Son to die for us and rise from the dead for us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that... You weren't compelled to do it. You did it willingly because you so love us. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you took all of our sins upon yourself. You died to pay all of the penalty we deserved. And then you rose from the dead once and for all, conquering sin and Satan and death so that we could have victory, so that we could have eternal life and resurrection as a free gift. And, and we, we pray, we beg of you right now, Lord Jesus, for anyone here this morning who hasn't yet trusted in you as their Savior, who either doesn't believe in this whole Christianity thing or, or is still trying to work your way, their way to you. Maybe they came to church this morning because they felt like it made them somehow more lovable to you or more acceptable to you. Maybe it would earn them heaven. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open their eyes right now to see that the resurrection really happened, 
And that when you rose from the dead, you were doing it for them so that they never have to try to earn your love again. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help them to see that eternal life is an absolutely free gift that they can have simply by saying yes to you. We pray that they would do that this morning. We pray for all of us who have said yes, that you would help us now to feel more equipped to share this good news with the people in our lives who haven't yet trusted in Jesus. I pray that like Peter or Paul or James, that we would be witnesses like Mary Magdalene and the women who first saw you risen, that we would go and tell people passionately that you've risen from the dead and because of that there is hope in the name of Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord Jesus, that through these people here this morning at Grace Bible Church, that hundreds if not thousands of people in this town and throughout this country would come to know and trust in Jesus as their Savior this week. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you defeated our enemies and that you offer that victory to us for free. We are so grateful. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Easter.